Every year, July the 8th, at Independence Square in Philadelphia, they have a public reading of the Declaration of Independence, even though historians now say, of course, that it was also read publicly on the 4th. It was to a less formal, lower class, maybe smaller group on the 4th. The big celebration or reading was on the 8th. Nevertheless, what I've liked is thinking about this week is it's called American Scripture. Being so significant and so earth-changing, world-changing, that Declaration of Independence, and therefore read every year. And it just made me think of a certain passage that I want us to read today, 1 Corinthians 15, and call it the Declaration of Liberty. The appropriate day for us to read it being how much we treasure this and view it as tremendously significant for our lives and our future. It's a long passage, it's the most sustained treatment of the resurrection in scripture. I'm gonna do my best to clip along as I explain it after I read it. Let me read it for us, tremendous chapter, and intensely practical for our living. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then, all, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made 
alive, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as it were, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen at each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven And I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is a law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It never is. And so I just have seven sentences to say to you today. And the first one is this. The gospel includes Jesus' bodily resurrection. It requires it. And so verse one and two of our passage, this covers verses one to 11. The gospel includes Jesus' bodily resurrection. Verses one and two, Paul just opens up his heart. He's appealing to them as brothers and sisters, deeply concerned. He aims to remind them of the gospel they've believed. And why is that? They've just forgotten it. They've forgotten it. And in particular, they've forgotten the bodily resurrection. They believe in survival of the soul, but they're not believing in bodily resurrection. It was such a strange belief in Greek culture and Roman culture. They thought it was a good thing to just shed the body. It was so bothersome. And so they have forgotten that basic doctrine because it was so odd in their culture. And we think it's strange that they would forget something so fundamental and that when we look at ourselves, we recognize it might not be so blatant, but we forget too. We always forget the gospel. It's like that statement they say in Britain when they want to warn passengers on the platform from that little gap before the train, that statement, mind the gap. And we all deal with the gap between what we say we believe and what we in fact do believe in practice. We're all prone to reinterpret the gospel according to what our culture tells us is a given, and that's what they are doing. And so it's essential that we keep the gospel clear in our minds and hearts. For our entire existence as believers depends upon it, and that's why it's so riveting that he speaks to them in this first and second verse, in the past, the present, and the future. The gospel they received in the past the gospel in which they have taken their stand and the gospel in which they are being saved heading towards the future. It wraps up their whole lives, past, present, and future. We cannot overstate the significance of it. Our past justification, our present sanctification, our future glorification. And he's urging them, if you don't hold fast to this doctrine of the gospel, it's all gonna be in vain. You're gonna show that you just had a temporary faith or a passing experience, not a, a living faith that grounds itself in the bodily resurrection of Christ. So then he moves on in three to five and he gives the foundations of the gospel. And there's two basic foundations of the gospel, fundamental events that are first importance, he says the priorities in your life. If you wanna boil it down, there's two events that we hang our lives on. And the first is simply this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's the heart of the gospel. The Old Testament revealed the utter necessity of someone to come who is capable of dealing with our sin and was appropriate to deal with our sin. And therefore, gradually through scripture, you had this idea, it had to be this person who must be God and must be man. 
The blood of bulls and goats didn't have a prayer to forgive me of my rebellion against God. And the other fundamental is given that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The two pillars of our hope, and this one being the resurrection. If the atonement is the heart of the gospel, the resurrection is the capstone of the gospel. In fact, on that first day of the week when the ladies came at break of day to the tomb and those two, those two witnesses at the tomb, those angelic beings of the tomb stationed there to speak with them says, he is not here, he has risen. It's the greatest word of history. So the Old Testament counter to Greco-Roman culture valued not just the spirit, but valued the body. That God loves you body and soul. The Old Testament also hinted at a redeemer who needed not only to resurrect, but resurrect on the third day. The signal example of that is the story of Jonah and the belly of the whale on the third day coming forth. And Jesus cites that. It's the resurrection that makes it possible to, to proclaim Christ died for our sins. Without it, we can't make that proclamation. It's the resurrection that proves that salvation is not mankind trying to climb up the mountain to reach God, but it's God coming all the way down to get us in his grace. It's the most important claim of Christianity that Christ rose so then Paul says, look, if you're doubting this now, just remember there are all kinds of witnesses out there. In the creed, it's Cephas and the 12, but he expands it because they need to know this. There's 500 at one time. There's James, his half-brother. There's even me. They're still alive if you need to go talk to them. Ask them. It's not only that Jesus' bodily resurrection is proved by an empty tomb that no one can contest, it's also proved by hundreds of eyewitnesses that all can corroborate it and many are still alive. And so he's grounding the Corinthians in the gospel they hold in common with believers. Second sentence, the denial of bodily resurrection implodes the gospel. Verses 12 to 18. So verse 12, Paul states the problem for which he's writing this chapter. And the problem is stated this way. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, they're claiming Jesus did resurrect, but then they're saying there's no general res resurrection that includes them. And Paul's response to them is, if you hold in common with all believers that God raised his son from the dead, how do you now assert there's no resurrection of the dead? It just doesn't make sense. So in verse 13, he gives the results of their inconsistency. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's to say, do you understand what you're denying, how serious the gap in your understanding is? And so he details the devastating consequences of that. So he goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, then everything we preach is in vain. In fact, we've even misrepresented God for we've made him out to be more faithful and gracious than he really is. And 
Furthermore, everything you believe is in vain because you are really still in your sins. And so why would they and us still be in our sins if Jesus didn't resurrect bodily from the dead? Well, you see, death is not just a natural process, though our world may teach us that. It's, death is a sentence on sin. If Jesus really satisfied the sentence of sin, then he must resurrect from the dead. Just like if a criminal satisfies the penalty of the law, he must be permitted to walk out of the prison. And so then to drive the despairing conclusion home, if Christ didn't rise, he says, if Jesus didn't rise, then those you love, who followed Christ, who have already gone to sleep, they haven't gone to heaven, rather they perish. They perish in their sins because there's no remedy for sin. And so any hope you have is limited to the here and now. And that's the conclusion if Christ didn't bodily resurrect. But that leads to the third sentence I want to give you today, and that is Jesus' Jesus's bodily resurrection requires our bodily resurrection. Verses 20 to 28. And so good news we have in verse 20, after that despairing conclusion in verse 19, immediately Paul says in verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. It's what we proclaim on an Easter Sunday in a special way. So those despairing conclusions aren't the case. And again, this is what Christians believe. This is what the Corinthians believed. It's that creed they held tight However, they aren't believing it in its true, full, biblical sense. They don't understand that God never viewed Jesus' resurrection as an isolated, one-off event just for him. Jesus doesn't do anything in his capacity as our Redeemer just for him. What Jesus does, he does for us. So Paul goes on to say he rose from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep because he's united and connected to us. And so there's this tremendous Old Testament background here. He calls Jesus the first fruits. It's like that first tomato you get in your garden and you know the others are coming. The first fruits is part of the full harvest. It's the evidence and guarantee that the rest of it's coming. In fact, it represents the whole harvest and it also begins the harvest. And that's the impact of Jesus's resurrection. What he's saying is there's one harvest and he's just the first one. He's the down payment, the picture of the whole, the commencement. Look at him and look at the full harvest destined to become ripe and ready. So what happens to Jesus is integral to what happens to you. The fact he's been raised from the dead means he's begun that ripening, harvesting process that will most certainly issue in you being raised from the dead. And then Paul reinforces this by speaking historically. More theologically, God set up the human race this way with two representative heads. There's Adam and then there's Christ, the second Adam. And so Adam represented a people, all those who come naturally from him. And Adam, 
opened the door to sin and therefore sealed the door to life. But Christ, this new Adam comes, who takes his place and he pays the penalty for sin so he can storm that door, force it back open, burst open the door to life for us, undo what Adam did. So therefore, all those that remain in Adam die, but all those who by faith enter a relationship with Jesus, that is all those in Christ shall live Then he walks through that process. What's going on in human history right now? Behind everything, what's really going on is that Christ resurrects first. He's the hinge on which swings the door of history. Christ resurrects first, then after he has fully and finally destroyed all his enemies, after he's fully and finally destroyed death at the last day, he will gather up the full harvest, all his people, And he will bring them and present them as a kingdom to his father. And he will complete his mission at that point. And they'll hand everything to God and he no longer has to be the great mediator on behalf of his people. He's done the work. That's what's really going on. And so the fourth sentence that Paul then moves into is the denial of the bodily resurrection leads to absurdity verse 29 through 34, Paul says, this is what life is all about. This is what's really going on. And for that reason, we lay our lives out every day because this is the most important thing going on in the world. But again, if the dead are not raised, then why do we hazard our lives every day for the gospel? Let's just eat and drink and be merry, eke out all the little miserable fun we can find out in this world for our lives are short and tomorrow we die and perish. And Paul says, I think that's what's going on with you. I think you've lost a sense of the bodily resurrection and therefore that's one of the main reasons you're sinking into your sin, your jealousy and idolatry and sexual immorality. Because your denial of the bodily resurrection has stripped away any motivation to be holy. He says bad company reduces or ruins good morals. When the culture is seeped into you, the degree that you're denying the resurrection, then it's also squeezing you into its way of life. Because underneath all of that, you and I are built for hope. Hope has been implanted in our hearts. And it's not this shadowy hope, it's hope of this life, but glorified. Well, that leads into the fifth sentence, the bodily resurrection entails transformed bodies. And that's verses 35 through 49. The bodily resurrection entails transformed bodies. And so we're moving in the second half of the chapter in his argument. We found that the main objection, the main concern of the chapter is that they are denying the bodily resurrection of Christians. But now we discover the main reason for their denying the bodily resurrection. The main reason for their denying the bodily resurrection is that they just can't get over the weakness and the frailty and the vulnerability of our bodies, all they can think of is is that it's a reanimation of corpses, a resuscitation to the same life we always had, a life that was so hard to begin with and one they didn't want to continue. So Paul helps them understand that the resurrection does mean a recovery of physical life 
It does mean continuity and identity with your body that you had on earth, but it means more than that, much more than that. There's a discontinuity, there's a differentiation. Just like Jesus was raised with a new kind of body, a glorified body, even so, you will be. So Paul first says our present bodies are like kernels of wheat. And a kernel of wheat is small and insignificant. It looks like nothing. It looks like a little pebble, small pebble, a fleck. But when it's put in the ground, when it germinates, when it dies, that outer husk dying, this new plant sprouts up. And it becomes a tall stalk with multiple heads of grain. And you'd never look at that kernel and think it could produce such a plant. But it does. There's continuity and discontinuity. It was that seed that produced that plant. That wheat seed produced that wheat plant. But the plant is so much greater than the seed that it blows your expectations and minds. Even so, the body is just this little kernel, this little seed that when it's put in the ground, comes out because of Jesus' resurrection body into a transformed body. There's discontinuity gloriously so. And we can multiply illustrations like that. We could think of a caterpillar going into the chrysalis and effectively dying and coming out of a but, as a butterfly. We could think of a supernova, a, a, a star dying to produce the energy and the elements of the universe. We can multiply in the picture of nature what confirms and underscores the greatest story that's going on in nature being that God is glorifying his people sentenced to death. And so Paul says God is fully capable of doing this for he created different kinds of bodies for all kinds of creatures. He created human bodies and animal bodies and bird bodies, fish, heavenly, earthly. He knows how to create a different kind of body. So it shouldn't surprise you that he can create a glorified body. A body just like his own. Because Jesus' body is our pattern. He's connected to us. When we see him, we see ourselves. And Jesus' body was physical, it cast a shadow. He wasn't ephemeral and ghostly. In fact, the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. He says, no, it's me, myself. Touch me. He could be touched, he retained his scars, yet people didn't at first recognize him. There was something distinct about him raised. He still remembered his friends and his history with his friends. He still loved his friends and was in relationship with his friends. He could make a fire by a sea and cook fish and eat with his dear friends. Yet he could pass through walls and appear and disappear and ascend into heaven. He has this continuity, it's really him, but also this glorious discontinuity, a body fit for the new heavens and the new earth, which will be this world but raised to a higher level. He has new properties and potentially new senses in order to inhabit such a world. I just think of our culture's love of superheroes and superheroes discovering their powers. And I think it bears testimony to the fact that we're built for this kind of hope. So Paul says, you'll be sown perishable. And you're raised imperishable. You're sown in dishonor. You're raised in glory. You're sown in weakness. You're raised in power. 
You're sown a natural body, you're raised a spiritual body. You won't become immaterial and less than human, but you'll be a body fit with a glorified spirit that's the best house and reflection of a glorified soul that will radiate through your body and show what you're like. And just as we've seen that the first Adam was a man of dust fit for this world, even so, we'll be like the last Adam, Christ, a man fit for heaven, life in the new world. And Jesus is not just our pattern, but he's our provider because he's become at the resurrection a life-giving spirit. Like he gives it to you. He rose to give it to you. And you know when you're young and strong and your body functions so well and you keep getting stronger and better looking and smarter, it's hard to really appreciate this. But as you grow older and if you've walked with someone with debilitating sickness and weakness, pain and frustration, embarrassment, and the loss of being able to do what they wanted to do and were used to doing, you realize how much they long for that day and how much you long for that day. We're not just a body that functions well, but a body that was created as God intended it to be in the garden. And yet as much as we want a body that will function like this, we'll have glorified souls too. There's no sin and no tug of temptation, no battle of the mind and heart, no disordered affections we have to deal with. And I love every year this time reading John, Joni Erickson Tata literature. She says in her devotional, yeah, when asked about the resurrection, she says, yes, absolutely, I'm longing to get out of my wheelchair and stand and stretch and reach to the sky. But let me tell you what I most want. I can't wait to not be crippled by distraction and disabled by insincerity and handicapped by half-heartedness. My heart will finally bubble over with effervescent adoration and that's what I'm longing for, a new heart. Which leads to the, sec- the sixth sentence. The bodily resurrection means the utter defeat of death, 50 to 57. And so one commentator writes, Paul brings his whole argument to its magnificent crescendo in these verses. It's like Handel's hallelujah chorus here. He gives the climactic answer to the question he posed in verse 35, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Well, he says flesh and blood, the, the perishable, that is our present earthly existence with bodies that suffer decay and death and temptation and sin and corruption. The reason the Greco-Roman world didn't want anything to do with them you're right, those bodies can't inherit eternal life. They can't enter the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new world, the glorified universe. So the question is how or when will this take place? And he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. At the last trumpet, at the end of history, when Jesus returns in glory, all you in Christ, in the twinkling of an eye, will be changed and transformed And you see, we believe in the gospel to the moment you die to the part is be with Christ in his immediate presence for he's a living savior. And yet that's not even the best yet. The best yet is that on that great and final day when he returns in glory and the last trumpet sounds, you will be raised somehow mysteriously joined together again, transformed you, but you 
glorified after the likeness of the glorified body and soul of Christ. And at that moment, it will be finally true. There's one funeral which we can't wait to see. And that's the death of death and the funeral of death. At that moment, it will finally be true. Death is swallowed up in victory. And so Paul just taunts death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It will be an utter defeat, an utter annihilation. All death's influence will be undone and God's original intent in the garden will be beautifully and fully realized. All the trial, all the tragedy, all the sadness and trauma will be so reversed that in a way we can't even imagine they contribute to our ultimate good and the good of the whole universe. And everything hard that you've gone through in Christ will be used to accentuate your experience of glory. And then Paul gives the theological reasoning for this, that the resurrection achieves all these benefits. Because he says, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is a law. Death isn't a natural process, but it's a result of a deadly poison. And that deadly poison is sin that seeped into everything. And as for sinners like us, God's law gives sin even more power because it exposes our sin, it condemns our sin, and even energizes our sin more. The more we know we're not supposed to do, the more we want to do it, as Jeremy eloquently said at the beginning of the service. But the gospel is that, is that God in Christ suffered for our sin at the cross and satisfied the demands of the law through his life. And in this way, God in grace gives us the victory. He takes out the poison into himself. So undoes the sentence and grants us his righteousness. And therefore, everything is turned upside down. Which leads to the last sentence. The bodily resurrection enables us to live well now. It's my favorite, one of my very favorite verses. That on the basis of all of this, we look at our lives, the good and the bad, the easy and the hard. We say, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. We started with vanity if Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead. We end, given that he did, that nothing is in vain, nothing. Even if you thought you just went down a track that you never should have gone down, it's never in vain. And so what he charges us to do is, brothers and sisters, bind yourself to God's people. Be steadfast and immovable. Camp out on the gospel of Christ and abound in the work of the Lord, for it all has value, and it all counts for eternity. So rejoice, this is your declaration of liberty and life, and it's grounded in an immutable fact of Jesus having risen bodily from the dead. Nothing is in vain, all of it counts, and you're beloved this way by such a loving, gracious, faithful Father who sealed it and proved it by sending his beloved son, that what he did is for you in rising bodily from the dead. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's stand.